Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Rail Talk with me, Michelle Craven Faulkner. Um, I'm a partner at Shoesmith, and I head up our national rail team. Um, now, we're revisiting a topic that we did a few months ago um, relating to AI and how it's used in rail. But I think what was quite clear to everybody, myself included, when we did that is I really don't know a great deal about AI. So what I've done today is we've brought in some more experts. So I'm really delighted to welcome back Hayden Bartlett-Tasker from Crosstech, uh, who's going to join me again to, to look at this. And then also today, I'm delighted that one of my fellow partners here at Shoesmiths, Alex Kirkhope, is coming along. Now, Alex is a technology partner in the same team as me and our commercial team, but he also heads up our AI advisory team as well. So I think it's quite clear that we've got somebody who knows a damn sight more about this than me. So just for a wee bit of a refresh, Hayden, do you want to tell um, everybody a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, firstly, thanks for having me on again, uh, Michelle. Um, this is great to be here again today. Um, yes, just quickly, we're, we're Crosstech. Uh, we build automated inspection systems using computer vision, which is a branch of AI, which we sort of discussed in the first part of this podcast series. Um, and yes, we've, we were actually one of Network Rail's Department for Transport Innovate UK's SME technology success stories, because we originally started in this space in, in 2018 and have gone on from there. So yeah, excited to be here again. Thank you. Right, Alex, over to you. In true Scylla style, you know, what's your name and where you're from. But actually, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on in the AI space at the moment? Yeah, well, firstly, thanks for having me along. It's great to be here. And um, yeah, I, I guess I'm very conscious this this podcast is very much looking at things from a, from a rail perspective. And obviously, when it comes to AI, the unique thing about that from a legal perspective is that it doesn't really see any sector borders in the way in which it's managed or the way in which, you know, businesses use it. It's of such generic application that it poses all sorts of legal challenges for companies uh, and legislators, actually. Um, and the whole global position on regulation of AI is just a brilliant demonstration of how complex that picture is. Um, the, the, there's various things on the horizon coming down, coming down the coming down the tracks, if I can put it that way, um, uh, on AI regulation, um, which just really demonstrate you know, there's no one answer to this, given it's given the nature of the technology that's involved. So I'll, I don't want to bore people with a sort of big clonking regulatory um, uh, legal talk. So I'll try and keep it punchy as much as I can. I don't know if that's possible. We'll see. Um, but we'll, we'll 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 start probably with the most clunking great piece of legislation of, of them all that's that's on the on the books at the moment, which is the EU's AI Act. Now. Um, just it's proof positive that AI did not start in November last year when ChatGPT was um, was 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 released released to the public. Because um, I think the first discussions on the EU regime started in about 2020. That was their first okay. policy paper. So that big long European legislation process is still grinding on. It's not quite finished yet, but it's very close to being implemented. Um, and that approach really takes a sort of typical EU regulatory um, view of the world. It's a bit like GDPR. So it's going to be big when, when it does come mm -hmm. into play. Um, it's that, I call it full fat regulatory um, regime, which assesses AI technologies based on the level of risk that they pose. So, you know, it goes from the very top sort of unacceptable risk. Those are things that are completely prohibited. And they're things like AI technology, which could result in cognitive manipulation, uh, 
social wow. scoring, um, biometric identification. And there was there was real, I don't want to get into the politics, but there was real to and fro within the European Parliament about what was high risk, what was unacceptable. You can imagine, you know, there's all sorts of different viewpoints depending on whether you're on the sort of libertarian free market side of the world versus the, you know, the the, the more social aspects, I guess, of the European project. Um, so it goes through these levels of risk um, and there are different obligations. Obviously, those high risk applications, you can't do that at all. That's completely prohibited. Mm-hmm. Um, there's then high risk applications. Those are things which affect critical infrastructure, which, you know, obviously from a, a rail perspective, you know, could, could well come into play. Um, things which affect employment or worker rights, so you know, real, real cross, cross sectoral uh, approach, um, and to think about the implications of, of of not meeting the requirements of of the act, and and essentially those requirements are around oversight, um, governance, you know, human oversight of those um, uh, those technologies. The fines that will come out at the end of this for non-compliant companies will be equivalent to GDPR, so it will be a percentage of global turnover of those companies if they if they don't meet the requirements. Um, it also covers generative AI. It, part of the reason there's been such a delay in the, in the legislation is that they realised not long before they were about to pass the act that actually ChatGPT did land, and they all went, "Oh, what are we going to do about that?" I mean, it, <laughs> it just proves the difficulty of, of coming up with a single regime for this. So it will require generative AI platforms to basically publish a the fact that that's what they are how you know what content was used in delivering answers um uh making sure it can't it can't give you illegal content or things that would be prejudicial all all those all those good things and you know the likes of um, google and the other big tech providers you know i don't think they are particularly keen on that but um it's coming down the track nonetheless um so that is the eu approach so, so Alex, just yeah. just on that then, I mean, it's interesting, as you say, they were just about to launch something and then chat GPT came online. So, but surely isn't that just the nature of AI? There's always going to be that next thing. So, I mean, surely we can't get to the point that we never get the regulation because the new, you know, we have to wait for the next thing and the next thing. It's, it's that whole thing, isn't it? Is the regulation going to be out of date from the moment that it goes live? Well, that is one of the arguments, um, but no, the, 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 it's it's not just going to get keep getting kicked down kicked kick down the road. Um, uh, it is going to come in shortly. There'll then be a sort of thirty six month implementation period, so there will be a sort of bedding in period. But I think essentially the EU's decided we can't keep delaying this. Um, yeah, no, it, it's arriving. I mean, that that leaps nicely though into the I guess the UK approach, which. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you and I will look at from a legal perspective, um, which is, you know, very contrasting. Um, it's light touch. Essentially, um, you know, the UK government has said we do not intend to um, pass any huge, um, you know, uh, overarching laws around this. We're going to devolve regulation of AI to the sectoral regulators. So I'm guessing in the rail context, is, is, is that the ORR? Probably would be. I'm not the expert, but given the health and safety implications, I guess is is one of the aspects of mm. AI, isn't it? You know, it's it's likely they will have a view on things. Um, but essentially, the UK government said we will pass this down to the to the relevant sector regulators. We are not going to pass sort of a huge overarching piece of legislation, um, and that poses massive issues in itself. In that, 
you know, and I said at the start, it's not a single sector topic AI. It covers everything. And and any AI application that has you know works in one sector is likely to have an application elsewhere. So it raises some big questions. It's fair to say industry has been quite nervous about this because it's mm. saying, well, if I don't know, the FCA is telling me something in a financial services context, um, maybe the ICO in a data context is telling me something else. Where's how can I plan the way I'm going to use AI, how will I have some overarching guardrails that I comply with? Well, I can see you can you can have overlap with so many regulators. I mean, just straight away, just then, I was thinking about application at stations, at yeah. train stations, yeah. because you know you might have the health and safety aspects of the railway, but then obviously it's a, you know stations are now becoming huge, almost destinations when you think of places like St Pancras, where you've got retail yeah. elements as well. And we have some uh, computer vision capability helping improve escalator uh, safety yeah. in St. Pancras live right now. So if you went to, um, you know, the GTR gate line, you see it working there. It's not tracking people. It's not using any biometric uh, yet because, yes, I was obviously very conscious of uh, the ethical uh, stance on, on, on facial recognition and, and, and biometrics there. But, you know, they are in there already. This technology is there. It's, it's usable and it does have society improving benefits you know particularly on safety and stations but yeah lots to if it's as big as a sort of a gdpr kind of get me nervous because i can see lots of uh lots of uh you know even just take like basic things service bots online for i won't say too many any household name where you've got a customer query they're all using chatbots that's all plumbed into you know one of the now generative ai service providers and one of the foundation models and now you're saying, well, every every sort of uh, company's now got to manage that legal um, legislation, which is going to come out. So it's it's going to be quite challenging, I think. Maybe more yeah. so than GDPR. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I think, in fairness to the EU, I think their view is that the vast majority of AI use cases will sit below, you know, certainly that prohibited level um, uh, of risk, and a lot will fall below that. That's, that's what they're arguing anyway. A lot will fall below that high-risk sort of enhanced monitoring level. Everything below that actually is, is largely pretty much, you know, you can just get on with it and contract, certainly as a business. But anything with a consumer-facing um, element to it, you know, you talk about that facial recognition, anything which derive, you sort of delivers outputs which some end user in the public is going to use and access or rely on, you know, obviously that that then brings its own enhanced level of risk. So, you know, there's different flavors of this, but the contrasting approaches of different jurisdictions just it poses a lot of questions. Well, what what do I comply with? Because as always with EU legislation, if you're a UK provider but delivering into the EU, you're still caught by it. You know, yeah. there's no there's no easy way out, which poses questions about how much the UK can kind of go off on its own course which of course it you know the, the current government would certainly say was part of the benefits of brexit and all those things that we had the ability to do our own thing but when it's a you know technology as a whole knows no borders never mind ai so um yeah it's it's it'll be interesting to see how that position evolves not least because of the sort of impending electoral cycle in the uk and whether the actual current government can get anything through before before the next election Interesting. Fun times. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, just just the suggestion that it's kind of going to be another GDPR, I'm sure we'll be sending beer 
Are we <laughs> gonna, most people. Are we going to have to have cookie warnings on every website <laughs> for Germany's of AI now? Well, that's an interesting I've... point, actually. I mean, yeah, why not? I mean, I feel like I'm going to give Hayden a heart attack by the end of this um, uh, <laughs> this discussion, but there, there there is another level to the EU approach, which hasn't yet materialised, but is very much in 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 the works. Which is there's something else called with no, not a lot of people are talking about. Everyone's talking about the AI Act, but there is something called the there's a draft AI liability directive, um, uh, and that includes in its current form, some pretty scary things from a from a sort of AI provider point of view around presumptions of liability where harm is caused by um, AI. And, you know, wow. I can certainly see, you know, in a sector like rail where there's a very heavy health and safety element, you know, if if an AI uh, system is, is, is making a decision and that is relied upon and then subsequently that turns out to be wrong and some damage was caused or, you know, heaven forbid someone was hurt or, you know, killed, um, then, um, you know, this, that poses some real questions around who is liable for that. Is it the initial developer? Is it the company that bought the AI system? Is it the company that operated the AI system? Is it someone using that AI system, i.e., I, uh, you know, an employee or something like that. Um, but but yeah. that, that draft legislation around liability talk, makes some presumptions of liability. It also allows um, uh, end users basically enhanced rights to understand what the algorithms and other, you know, it's, it's this principle of explainability, which um, sort of, and transparency, which arises a lot when we're talking about AI law, um, where the end user has a right to understand how a decision was made or how that system came to deliver whatever output it generates. Um, now, again, I don't want to get too political, but this, for obvious reasons, that that is a real contentious piece of legislation within within the European yeah. Parliament. So whether it reaches the statute book or not, we don't quite know yet, but um, it could do. Well, I think it's fair to say, Alex, after that, that if, if you know, if we were doing this as videoed, I think you'd just have Hayden and I sat here open mouth. <laughs> Hayden's clearly thinking about his business and I'm thinking about a number of clients who work in this space in the rail industry and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how would I deal with that um, from a contractual side? So I think, so what we're basically saying then is there's a whole lot of stuff that's, that's being looked at. I think, as you rightly say, Alex, in terms of where we are in a political cycle here in the UK, whether any of that is going to be forthcoming before the next general election, we we don't know. Um, but it's it's definitely things for people to be aware of, isn't it? It's it's kind of we need we need to know that this stuff, as you say, is coming down track. So if we move slightly away from the legislation. I mean, I don't know. Let's talk about a fun topic, like whether you know robots are going to take over the world and we're all going <laughs> to we're all going to lose our jobs. But I think the first thing is, is it's kind of a question for both of you here, which is which are those industries at the moment who are kind of ahead of the curve when it comes to this kind of technology? Who who are the key players at the moment? A lot of AI or machine learning has been very successful in industries particularly to consumers that uh, so not really sort of where we sort of specialize in heavy heavy rail and infrastructure but you know just generally the ability to get you to buy a pair of shoes online that you don't necessarily need i've um, never needed a machine, 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 machine learning um <laughs> has absolutely optimized that um and they and, and and it is very heavily adopted in everything that you do on your phone 
Mm. Um, and all those well-known apps that you use for social media, you know, I'm being careful not to name certain <laughs> names. Um, you know, that's all got it very heavily embedded. Um, your data is being taken through lots of different uh, machine learning uh, 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 and neural networks to get you the optimum content. Uh, so anything in that space have adopted it very, very heavily. Um, and that's probably why they're also the same companies that are producing the generative AI models, because they have a massive strategic advantage of that. And they can be the foundation models, which other services in the generative AI space are uh, built from. And I think that's an important thing to distinguish. There are still, is it a very small concentration of um, large, normally tech organizations who have built the foundation models. Um, so there is a concentration there. Uh, and obviously people are building on top of those. So from that perspective, and then if you sort of look to the sort of sectors we work in, I actually, you know, um, I'm not saying this because I've got a sort of uh, invested interest, but just just being fair, I think the UK rail industry, particularly in sort of the vision vision side of AI, so we specialise in computer vision, is actually quite ahead compared to others globally um, who are still, you know, sending lots of people to do manual inspections every day out onto track or into the station environment. Um that you know, we're actually quite quite far ahead, and um, we've got a huge export opportunity there to sort of sell our services abroad of that next the next iteration of the railway and that digital railway side of things. Um, and then yeah, so I, I'm going to pause there because I, I don't want to sort of be a be a monologue, and I'll, I'll come back with some with some other in in industries as well. But uh, yeah, I would say there are, are two sort of different different views. What about you, Alex? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd agree with Hayden in that you can't get away from those huge tech giants. You know, it's it's a bit, it sounds a bit of a cliche uh, at this stage in the cycle, but, you know, he's quite right. The, 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 um, the amount of data that is needed um, in order to drive certainly these um, um, foundation models uh, is so vast that it is only those large organizations that really have the capability, the resource. Mm -hmm the time and the money um, to be producing, you know, the likes of ChatGPT and BARD. Um, uh, and that will continue to be the case, um, you know, I think for some time yet, you know, before, before you know, uh, other, other organizations can catch up with that. Um, in terms of use cases, what I'm seeing, certainly in some of the clients I'm working with, um, actually in a, in a bit less of a scary way than perhaps AI is sometimes talked about, marketing actually and it's an extension of that thing of you know what Hayden was talking about about you know um uh, browsing uh, uh habits and all that kind of thing but marketing uh, functions within our um, clients businesses are very much using um you know things like text to image um ai solutions where you can literally mock up um you know maybe a marketing campaign or something like that you can just go oh produce me a Produce me a perfume advert, you know, with imagery, you know, based on the following themes. And you can go into a, a, a solution like Dali, which is sort of famous text to image yeah. AI solution, and it will produce you some content. Now, you probably don't want to use that content publicly because you've no idea where where it's sucked all yeah. the data and images that have produced that mock-up from. But actually, if you think about it, that's, you know, a very usable, useful cost-efficient, time-efficient solution for companies to be using that type of solution in their, you know, back office functions to drive their marketing campaigns or things like that. So, you know, we often talk about the scary things of AI, but there's so much opportunity um, for businesses. And I think in that space, that creative space, you know, 
there's a lot of questions, don't get me wrong, around IP and all those risks that, that are inherent in AI. But there's also, you know, I think a lot of opportunities um, uh, as long as you're approaching it in the right way. Yeah, so I'll just to, I'll just to sort of come in and add on that, you know, we they, I think that's absolutely true. There's a lot of sort of manual tasks in um, these information-based roles, you know, marketing, coding, that... Uh, you know, AI can really help shortcuts and, and, and speed up. Um, and I think that is a huge opportunity to drive um, productivity as, as well. I think that is like, it is, you know, even things like just crafting crafting emails, um, you can you can save a lot of time just asking, you know, one of the well-known generative AI applications to do that. But there's also people now building whole workflows and holds whole services from basically these generative AI agents. So they are like brawlers, which are going like doing the work for you and you are prompting it, right? So you are instructing it with certain logic and certain um, ability to think in its own way and make decisions. And that can actually build you an end-to-end -end service. And you can actually watch it as it goes away to try and work, work out things and and make decisions so they are very very powerful if they were used in the right way but i i, I think you know um you know i i don't want it to be doom and gloom because everyone's like doom and gloom is on that bandwagon i think a lot of it is about just helping remove sort of the more mundane tasks or a quicker way to inspiration mm -hmm. i think art is a really interesting thing so i have this weird thing i think i think um art is good is 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 going to not really be affected people think oh no art is going to be affected and i actually think the opposite i think no people are going to pay for the human imperfection that a human delivers because you can recraft and recraft and reiterate uh on one of the well-known image generation applications you know very very quickly and get to a really cool image that you really want right and you can then use photo editing software to make it perfect but it's computer perfect so it's not art and it's in the same way and obviously a, a, an artist couldn't do that. They couldn't, it'd take them 10 years to get through that iteration of the same concept they're trying to achieve. So, you know, the people are like, oh, the art world's gonna fall off. I actually think it's gonna, the, the human art world is gonna increase and become more rare and much more in demand from it because people look at that and be like, yeah, that's great, but a computer did that. Where someone would be like, oh, the human, the, the time, the sweat, the toil to do that. So there are, you know, I don't think it is all doom and, doom and gloom at all. Just well, different perspectives. Well, as part of preparing for this, um, I, I, you know, do have a special guest that I wanted to introduce at this point to the podcast, which is that I decided to run some of these questions through a well-known generative AI tool. And one of the questions that I asked is, what are the key reasons why some industries use AI more than others? And there's a couple of observations I'm going to make here. The first is that it terrifies me that it talks about itself in the first person because, you know, that's a little bit scary. Um, but but I just wanted to go through the headline points here. I'm not going to read all of it because whew, it can bang on. Um, so it said that the adoption of AI in industries can vary significantly and several key reasons contribute to these differences. The first is data availability and quality. The second is competitive pressure. The third is regulatory environment. The fourth is customer experience. Then we've got technology at uh, technological maturity, cost considerations, labor intensity, risk tolerance, innovation culture, specific use cases, global events and trends, and government initiatives. 
It then goes on to say, it's important to note that AI adoption is a dynamic process and industries can change their approach based on evolving circumstances and technological advancements. The level of AI adoption in an industry may continue to evolve over time. There you go. That's, that's the view of the scary little person in my phone. Oh, I think that's a good sit on the fence answer. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, it'd be interesting. It's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I, you know, I think, it, yeah, it, yeah, I don't think right now, generative AI, we seem to be homing on that part of AI, so to speak, is that good a decision maker yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't think it's a good senior decision maker. No. I wouldn't trust it at all. No. Uh, I'd like to put in like a scenario and then it'd make a decision for you and you're like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I think for things like that, it is, it is quite, uh, but it's useful to guide you in yeah, and to help you explore. I mean, what I found interesting is I don't know if you've you've seen recently, but um, it's been incorporated into LinkedIn, a tool that we all use all the time. You know, do you want generative AI to write your posts? It's like, well, no, thanks. I can, I can do that. And actually, the other day, in readiness for us doing this podcast, when I was putting something out on LinkedIn, I did say, okay, let's, so, you know, put in what it is that we're doing. And actually, what came out was so far away from sounding like me that I didn't use any of it yeah, because it, I thought, you know, I would look at that and know that I hadn't written it. Yeah. And and I think especially on things like social media, I mean, I suppose it's different if you know if I was, I don't know, even if I was doing the LinkedIn account for Shoesmiths, maybe if you're doing it for an organisation. But I think. You know, when you look at LinkedIn for most of us, it's it's a way of promoting our brand. It's our personal brand. So if if I'm promoting my personal brand, it has to be my voice rather than the voice of a, a little person. The internet. Like, right. Yeah, the internet. Yeah. Everything that's been on the internet and in libraries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. The, Sorry, Alex, go on. Well, I was just going to say there's, there's two observations I'd put on that, because it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? The, the most effective or people's perception of the most effective outputs from AI are the ones that sound the most human. It sounds obvious, but it's incredibly difficult to achieve. However, there's sort of contrasting experiences. So one of our clients, an energy provider, has a big chatbot, which is part of its um, uh, customer services offering. Um, And it did a survey against people who spoke to someone on the phone line versus um you know the ones who accessed the chatbot and got um uh, a chatbot response to their question and the empathy scoring i.e the sort of human empathy rating for the chatbot was higher than no. it was for the people who spoke now of course that's just one example and you know you don't know what those people's experiences were or what questions they were asking so you've got to kind of take it with a pinch of salt but it is interesting that you know companies looking at this certainly for things like customer um you know relations and those sorts of things it's not necessarily a sort of linear question of actually it's a chatbot you're going to get a less effective answer necessarily um the other thing is and i think hayden made a good point there about sort of it's the sit on the fence answer certainly um uh anecdotally speaking to clients about this certainly one expert i was talking to recently his view is that um actually some of these generative ai models have become worse as more guardrails have been put down around them you know we've all heard that when they first came out they were producing absurd wrong downright dangerous 
answers. And as a result, you know, all sorts of filters and restrictions have been put by those companies on the the answers they can generate. Um, but a lot of users are therefore finding that the outputs they're getting from it are a less interesting and b sort of less useful and you know yeah. because because those guardrails are getting narrower and narrower, you know the the answers are getting narrower as well. Um, so there's a real challenge for the industry if this is going to evolve into something far more you know generically useful to kind of keep that human element in it without completely shutting down the you know. The, the whole the whole thing of it being able to you know be original in its answer. I, going Straight. back to the point that you've just made about the chatbot, it's, I, I don't know which way you'd look at that. It's either the chatbot is amazing, or actually you've got a real issue with your the human beings who are are on the customer services line. I mean, you could look at it on both ways from that, can't you? Really, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because there's a, there's quality, right? Like if your chatbot gives a consistent quality output, which you're looking for. Whereas sometimes, you know, humans are humans and sometimes they have bad days, right? And sometimes you don't get the same quality. Yeah, true. You know, and there has to be some empathy, I think, with humankind in the sense like we've got to accept that sometimes people are not going to be on top form and give the best quality in, you know, in any sort of role. And a lot of people, you know, you can get some very extreme people like, well, we just use ChatGPT. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't say the name. But like, yeah, Jets with AI, you know, just just for, you know, because it will give us a consistent out, outcome. But sometimes, you know, so that's that's a debate that's got to happen. That's yeah. going to happen. And that's going to be some sort of, you know, um, yeah, point of, de- point of debate. But, yeah, I can't see, I think... I think people, some people still like to interact with with, with humans, and it's kind of similar to my point of the, the sort of the artist point of view. And the, one of the beauties of, of 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 humans is that we are perfect. And if, if it becomes too uh, like clean, like mm-hmm. generative AI, it sort of loses that attraction, and it becomes very sterile. And, yeah. And and I think that's quite an interesting point to. And to see how that evolves is, is quite an interesting space. That's why I was kind of jumping in there because, yeah, on that whole human the human piece is is, is, is is quite interesting. Well, that leads me nicely onto the next point I wanted to raise with you both, which is, is there, and this is going to be a really interesting one for the both of you, considering what you both do for a living, is there such a thing as too much tech? You know, how can we keep that human element here yeah you know, it's going to start impacting our society isn't it as you say if everything is too clean so is that is there such a thing as too much time do you want- i mean I, I i would say probably not but it's got to be within the right context and the right usage sort of um limitations and always retaining i mean it's a key theme i'm sort of obviously stuck on the legal side but you know a lot of the themes that are coming out on this are retaining that human oversight Mm-hmm. Is this is this system deriving absurd or biased or discriminatory outputs? You know that can evolve with an AI model. You know it may be fine on day one, but as it sucks in more data or you know learns from what it's doing, it can become you know biased or discriminatory. And actually, having that level of human oversight is a key element to it. You know, is this still doing what we thought it would do? Is it serving its purpose? Is it harming people? You know, all those mm. questions. So I think, you know, we talked around various use cases, which is clear benefits that are going to come from it. Um, but it's about having the guardrails there. And it's whether those guardrails are big clunking ones or, you know, light touch, let it let it do its thing, but within within some sensible limitations. 
it's interesting, isn't it, though, because those guardrails are going to be put in place by people. So on the basis that those people have political views, certain, certain biases, um, but then policy is also driven by humans. Yeah. I think, I think, I'd say, look, there's, there can be, I think this is, I know we're going on a slight off topic, but why not? It's a Friday afternoon. <laughs> I think we're on the afternoon. And um, just, um, you know, these tools in the wrong hands can be very, very mm-hmm. dangerous to society. Uh, criminals, people who want to influence things with bad, for, for bad intentions, they, they can be gamed. Um, but on the side, they can do a lot of good. Like if you think about it, and the world has probably never had, access to a digital library like this Mm -hmm. you know people talk about search and how that opened it up and wikipedia which are fantastic human resources people have got a a library the only problem is is you can change this library and influence the outcomes if you can influence the information it's trained on and if you know what enough and, and and this is kind of i guess we are going into the bad things these will be used these tools in things like elections they will be and we have to accept that and we have to understand how they'll be used in the good light and the bad light. And mm. there is a whole industry, and I think it's going to be a big booming one. And if I wasn't in rail, because I'm naturally interested in AI, and obviously I love rail as well, but you know, I'd be thinking, well, there's a big opportunity here to to look at how do you govern and uh look at how those those AI systems are actually Output and information. That is a huge task, a mm-hmm. huge challenge. And in the same way, like a huge, massive, very interesting problem and market, which attracts, I don't know. Yeah, it attracts, hopefully, it will attract a lot of people because it needs it. So I think we haven't really got onto I know there's, we talked about legislation before, but that's policy and legislation. It's yeah. then how do you do that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. How is it policed? I mean, Alex, have you got a view on if there's such a thing as too much tech beyond that point? Well, I think the answer is, as far as it relates to AI, I think there could be at some point in the future. What I always come back to, though, is that even what we think of as these most sophisticated, you know, the the big generative AI platforms, even those in sort of techie speak are what's called narrow or weak AI uses, which just Mm -hmm. means actually it's a pretty narrow and restricted use it's not it's not general intelligence in the sense that you or i as humans mm-hmm. would have that we can think about things and sort of cross refer things between different things it, it's looking at an uh, a question that is narrowly put to it and and you know very cleverly and from a very wide data set producing an answer to that but it's not what those techies would call artificial general intelligence which is sort of human equivalent and it's nowhere near yet or at least not that we're aware of, um, uh, you know, what's called artificial superintelligence, which is the one that we all read about in the sort of sci-fi books and are absolutely terrified of, which is intelligence that exceeds human capabilities. And, you know, goodness knows, who who knows when or how we might get there, but we're not there yet. Um, uh, So, you know, is there too much tech? Probably not yet that we're aware of, but it's, you know, it's, it's heading in one direction, isn't it? It's, it's coming down the line. Well, I think I'm going to leave the final word to the special guest. And I asked the special guest, what are the disadvantages of too oh. much tech? Because I thought, you know, let's, let's ask the tech itself, what are the disadvantages? And so the headlines are dependency. So an over-reliance on technology can lead to dependency. Um, 
which means that they could struggle to function without it. Um, you know, I still go back to the the time that I had to handwrite a letter and dig out a dusty fax machine from an office somewhere because every system had gone down because everything was done through our computers. But anyway, uh, privacy concerns. So about the, the fact that things can be hacked, they can be misused, they can be misused yeah. by the companies. Yeah. Uh, job displacement, which I think ends up being ultimately a lot of people's concerns. Um, digital divide, which actually bringing it back to the rail industry is something that's being spoken about a lot when it comes to ticketing. Um, you know, as to it's all very well saying you can book online, you can have your ticket on your phone, but not everybody has access to to that kind of thing. Um, health impacts, which I thought was a really interesting one to be reading off my phone, which is about excessive screen time um, and the impact that 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 can have. And I know that there's a lot of now discussion about whether that's also um, impacting people, you know, neurodivergency as well and and kind of, you know, that whole doom scrolling. Mm -hmm. Um, And then finally, the ethical dilemma. And, And I'll read this bit. So it says the use of technology, especially in areas like AI and biotechnology, can relate can raise ethical dilemmas, including questions about bias, discrimination and potential misuse of advanced technologies. So dare I say it, that the special guest seems to be aligning with things that you guys have been saying. So maybe those filters are in place. Yeah. <laughs> those filters and so. guardrails. <laughs> yeah. Either that or you two are just generative AI in disguise. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think I think uh, there, there there's some very, very good points in there that it's it's raised, specifically the the health side of things, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, look, we could chat about this forever, for days, for months, for years. Um, let's hope it doesn't take that long for the legislation to come online, whether that's the EU or the UK. Uh, and, and obviously then we've got rest of the world. And as you said, Alex, before, how that all overlaps and you know works together. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this is policed. Yes. I think that's the point, exactly the point that you just made, Hayden. It's all very well having the legislation, but how is that actually policed? And, um, you know, there's already been suggestions, hasn't there, about uh, election rigging and things like this. You know, how, how are we going to see that coming down the line? Well, it's not necessarily even rigging. It's just uh, the the part of, I guess, electioneering. Yeah. You know, getting information out there is changed. I'm not saying they're rigging or doing anything illegal with it. I'm saying they're using a tool which is available to completely change the way in which electioneering is is conducted. So, yeah, I just want to clarify that point before I get sued <laughs> by someone. Then have to, uh, you know. we, we can always strike back. But, but, yeah. but on, on, on that sort of, um, you know, the, the policing of it, you know, a key part of this, as far as I'm concerned, is having some kind of common global standards around this thing. You know, let's stop pretending we can all do this within our individual countries. Um, and, and in that context, the UK is uh, to great fanfare, certainly by itself, hosting um, uh, a global AI summit in November. So that's sort of looking at the horizon. You know, that's coming up in November. The hope for that, whether it will materialise, we'll, we'll, we will see, is that that is the start of a conversation of starting to bring together not only the EU and the UK, but China, US, you know, other big vested global interests to start pulling together. You know, some people compare it to atomic energy and some some of the international rules that apply to that. Um, I don't think it's quite the same because of the amount of consumer facing aspects of it. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether this autumn, you know, we start to get mm-hmm. some traction on that international cooperation. Because I think until that happens, 
you know, it, there are a lot of questions unanswered in terms of in terms of what a common understanding of what's acceptable and what's not is. Good place to end. Yes, both really enjoyed that. I actually feel like I know a little bit more, and I'm probably just a little bit more slightly terrified. So thank you for that. Thank you very much. Yes, yeah, pleasure. It's great. <laughs>